0: Ted Burnham,
1: and I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 28th, 2014.
0: Coming up, we'll speak with the authors of a book about the science of football and learn how a random bounce can flummox even the best athletes.
2: When the ball bounces, you don't know where it's going to go, and these gladiators are just kind of reduced to kindergartners.
1: And there's a new atomic clock at bowlers NIST that would, if it could last that long, lose or gain less than a second over the age of the Earth.
0: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
3: Google has gone beyond the Google Glass and announced that they will begin to develop glucose monitoring contact lenses for diabetics. Sugar or glucose levels can change rapidly for diabetics with normal activities such as eating or exercising. Current methods for monitoring levels often use sensors under the skin or require pricking a finger to draw blood. The new contact lenses work by monitoring glucose through tears. The contacts consist of tiny microelectronic sensors and circuits embedded between soft contact lens material. Tiny LED indicator lights would then alert the wearer of unbalanced levels of glucose. Google wrote on their blog that several clinical studies have been completed, and they will continue to work with the FDA and other experts in the field to develop a safe and marketable product. For How on Earth, this is Kendra Krueger. Climate researchers
4: at NYU are looking to the north to explain climate changes down south Specifically, they are looking to the North and Tropical Atlantic to explain changes observed in Antarctica. They call the Atlantic a previously unknown and surprising force driving southern climate change. Using data from the past three decades, the researchers at NYU found that warming Atlantic waters were followed by changes in sea level pressure in Antarctic waters and redistribution of southern sea ice. To determine whether the occurrences were actually cause and effect, the researchers used a global atmospheric model to calculate what would happen down south with warming temperatures up north, in the Atlantic. The model responded, as the researchers had suspected, by changing the climate in Antarctica. The study offers further confirmation that warming in one region can have far-reaching effects in another. The findings appear in the January 23rd edition of the journal Nature. For How on Earth, I'm Beth Bartell.
5: Water, water everywhere, including the asteroid belt. Astronomers have made the first detection of water vapor coming off of the asteroid Ceres. The asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is a collection of rocky debris left over from the formation of the solar system four and a half billion years ago. Ceres is the largest asteroid known, with a diameter of 950 kilometers, containing one-third of all the mass of the whole asteroid belt, and is large enough that it is the only object in the inner solar system to be classified as a dwarf planet. As reported in the journal Nature last week, researchers used the European Space Agency's Herschel Space Observatory to measure that Ceres is releasing about six kilograms of water per second. The source of this water is unknown. The authors suggest two scenarios, one where water near the surface is evaporating and the other where a deep mantle of water ice creates geysers. The source will likely be determined with NASA's Dawn spacecraft when it goes into orbit around Ceres next year. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. And here's your weather report
1: for the next billion years. Rain every day, everywhere, all the time. It's been raining every day, all day, everywhere for billions of years. Water is in the comet and asteroid dust drizzling down on the Earth. The H2O is made from hydrogen ions in the solar wind and the oxygen from the dust's minerals. The dust can be full of carbon, too, so life's ingredients have been seeded throughout the solar system from time immemorial. While long suspected, researchers from Hawaii and California just now were able to see the tiny bits of water in the space dust using a very powerful microscope. Grab your eternal umbrella, I'm Jim Pullen.
0: Thanks to our How on Earth correspondents for those reports. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Ted Burnham. This Sunday, the Denver Broncos face the Seattle Seahawks in the Super Bowl, so we thought we'd bring you a scientific perspective on the game of football. I spoke recently with the co-authors of the book Newton's Football, The Science Behind America's Game. Here's journalist Alan St. John and science evangelist Anissa Ramirez. Anissa, you're an engineer, so I want to ask you, why write a book about football?
2: Well, I'm a person who loves science, and I'm a person who loves explaining science. And uh, what better way to explain science than through a game that is probably the most popular game in the United States?
0: So is this a science book that will get nerds excited about football, or is it a football book that will get jocks excited about science?
2: It's a sports book, and so it's mostly for people who love sports, but it's got a lot of science in there. And what's been surprising is that both nerds and jocks have been satisfied with it.
0: You call the book Newton's Football, and if someone were to sort of judge it by its cover, they might think it's going to be all about physics, because there's equations and, you know, Newton, obviously. But uh, I had a lot of fun reading this book, because there's so much more than physics in it, and there are chapters about game theory and psychology and evolution. So I'm curious, for both of you, how did you manage to pull in all these different ideas and draw those connections to football? Uh,
2: I'll let Alan take a shot at that
0: question. Well, I
6: think. It's really a, a, a book about, like all good books, I hope, uh, about stories. I would tell a football story and Nisa would tell a science story. and We'd find ways in which those things sort of, you know, melded.
0: So one thing that surprised me uh, with all of this, the stories that you're telling is how different football was in, say, the early 1900s or even the 50s or the 60s. And so so these stories you're telling, it seems like they describe all these small changes. It, it was simple things, you know, it was like letting uh, an offensive lineman use his hand Hands to block the defense. Little changes like that in the rules, they, they spiral out into these massive changes that reshape the whole strategy of the game. So I guess, is it fair to say that the history of football, uh, as you're telling it, is in large an object lesson in the power of unintended consequence?
2: Yeah, I think that uh, the evolution of football is also just a human story. This happens all the time, where small, incidental things that you don't really think much about end up being huge things. And that's one of the reasons why the title, Newton's Football, was appropriate, because we harken back to when Sir Isaac Newton saw an apple falling, and he happened to be in a contemplative mood of where he was thinking about how the planets move, and it, that small event made him think about something grander, and so that's why we have the notion of gravity. So the parallel is that humans and football are alike in a lot of ways because these small things happen and give rise to bigger changes.
6: And the other thing is that, you know, very much this book sort of traces sort of the history of football. But the other thing that we were finding is that right now I think people look at football as being a sort of a crisis point, that we have these head injuries and we have, you know, people are looking at the the future of the the game and wondering what it's going to be. And on the other hand, what we're also seeing is that a lot of these same problems go back a hundred years. A hundred years ago. The president of the United States was saying football is too violent. The game is on the verge of being banned. And, you know, it was really the same sort of problem that we're having today.
0: I'm glad that you bring up the, the head injury issue because th- there were some really surprising things in the book. And I feel like it's similar to a lot of science that the things that you're writing about are, are often counterintuitive. You learned that helmets are partly responsible for the type of play that we have now that causes all these concussions. And we think of helmets as safety equipment. So what's going on there?
2: Well, it ends up that the helmet was never designed to mitigate concussions. It was designed to prevent skull fractures. And Alan and I propose in Newton's Football that when we added another safety feature to the helmet, particularly the face mask, the style of playing in football changed. People started using their heads when they tackled, and so now we have a new problem. Um, So that's kind of where we are today, and that's sort of how design and science and, you know, football is evolving, that we have problems that, We solve, and then another problem kind of pops up.
0: So what's the answer? Uh, There there are some chapters later in the book that talk about some of the options, like better designed helmets or going back to no helmets, like it was played uh, back in the 1800s. What could we do? What does science say?
6: I think that what you're going to see is it's not going to be one particular answer, or at least something that's obvious to us at this point. I think it's going to come from this sort of unintended consequence. What sounds crazy, which is just eliminating helmets, well, the point is we're not really suggesting that they play the Super Bowl with no helmets, but we are saying, let's think in that sort of outside-the-box kind of way, how would it change? Would the game get safer in certain ways? Would the game be, be more dangerous in other ways? Is there some sort of a middle ground that we're not seeing? In a game where the knee-jerk response is more and more protective helmets, which again, you know, encourages players to play more aggressively.
0: I know that the the concussion issue is, is a big deal, but I don't want to give our listeners the impression that the book is all about concussions, because it's certainly not. There are so many other things in, in this book, things like chaos theory and trigonometry, at which obviously coaches and players aren't doing calculations on the sidelines. How does it actually come into play?
2: In some cases, coaches are talking to mathematicians and analytics guys so they're not as separate as we thought but what we also learned is that some people just had an intuitive understanding of how to change the game so you know Sam Weiss was trying to figure out how he can have an advantage and one of the things that he could do was not give his uh, opponents an opportunity to switch out players and to rest and so that was the creation of the no huddle offense and You know, one can also define that from a scientific point of view, which is that's instilling chaos theory because we're changing what are called the initial conditions. How things start drastically can change what the result is.
6: From our point of view, again, we sort of stumbled upon this a little bit because we had talked to Sam Weish in the morning and then later that day we end up with Stephen Wolfram on the line, who's, you know, a remarkable scientist. And we realize when he's talking about chaos theory, he's describing what Sam Weish was doing in a very specific way. And it was really kind of, you know, a light bulb moment, a sort of, you know, a kind of Newton's apple for us, sort of seeing this connection by these two guys who are about as different as they can possibly be.
0: I guess I, I just have one more question for the two of you. Who is going to win the Super Bowl?
6: A football team. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, I think the Denver Broncos are going to win, but I think that you know, for example, randomness is likely to be a really big factor in this game. And the, one of the things that we found, for example, is that when the football bounces, because of the shape of it, when the ball bounces, it bounces in a random way. And the fact is, on the one hand, yes. Holding on to the football, that's a skill. Stripping the ball from the other guy, that's a skill. But once the ball's on the ground, nobody really knows where it's going to go. And the bounce of the ball can be a huge thing.
2: When the ball bounces, you don't know where it's going to go, and these gladiators are just kind of reduced to kindergartners. And what Alan and I found is that we looked at two teams that looked pretty much the same on paper, except when it came to recovering fumbles. And the team that did a better job of recovering fumbles had a better season.
6: You know, over the course of a couple seasons, these things tend to even out. Over the course of a season, maybe, maybe not. And over the course of a game, one or two lucky bounces can be the sort of thing that determines who wins the Super Bowl.
0: That was Alan St. John and Anissa Ramirez. Their book, Newton's Football, The Science Behind America's Game, is in stores now.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. We've got a couple of physicists in the house today to help us understand a new timepiece and why it's so important. It's a timepiece at JILA, a new atomic clock. Welcome to the show, Travis, Uh, Travis and Sarah. Travis uh, Nicholson and Sarah Campbell are graduate students on the team. It's led by Professor Junier. Welcome, folks. Thanks. So uh, you know uh, following on our Super Bowl piece, I have to kind of ask, is there a race for the best, the hottest clock at NIST? Uh, is there a Super Bowl of atomic clocks going on there? I mean how competitive are you guys
7: um yeah, it's uh sort of a global competition um you know it's it's a friendly competition, but it's uh definitely a tight one um There's a lot of people working on strontium and other clocks that are competing ion clocks that are nearly as good so
1: well you guys have just scored a touchdown so to speak <laughs> or a field goal or something like that field goal anyway so tell us about this new strontium clock i hear it's uh the most precise uh clock around uh one part and 10 to the 19th what all what does that mean <laughs>
7: um so basically what that means is uh if you think about it in in time units it won't lose a second in the age of the Earth if it were to operate continuously. Yeah, and so why do clocks need to be so precise? Isn't my,
1: uh, well, I don't have a Rolex, just a minute. Uh, That's after the Super Bowl. But, you know, what's wrong with my Timex? Uh, uh, Why why isn't my Timex good enough?
8: I guess if they're more precise, they won't really help you be more on time or whatever. But lots of technologies definitely rely on atomic clocks. Um, like, for example, GPS or whatever, um, it tells your location on the Earth by measuring time delays between you and um, a network of satellites all over the globe. So basically, if we can make time more precise, um, we can measure other things um, that actually have really important applications better. So. So
1: 10 to the 19th, let me put this into perspective. No, there isn't any other sort of measurement that has a precision of 10 to the 19th. What does that mean, any one part 10 to the 19th? I'm going to start writing zeros here while you guys talk, and I'll tell you when I'm done. I'll write 19th. So
7: it's actually 10 to the 18, by the way. Um, But uh, what it means, uh, yeah, in terms of, uh, I don't know, some type of more physically intuitive measurement, I guess uh, you could say the Earth is... 5 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. And so uh, it would be like measuring the mass of the Earth to better than 10% of a single skyscraper on earth. Yeah, right. So this is there's nothing else like it though, right? I mean, there's no other measurement as precise as a frequency measurement on which is what we do. We we work with frequency measurements.
1: Well, this is strontium, right? This is a strontium
7: Correct. clock. What what
1: what is it? What's what's the difference between a strontium clock and a cesium clock and what what makes this particular clock so special?
8: Um, so I guess the only difference between like different clocks is the kind of atom you use, but if you use a strontium atom, um it can actually be an optical frequency um, atomic clock. So the thing that's ticking in our t- clock is actually like so fast, it's at the frequency of light. Whereas um, for the cesium clock that we all know and love in Boulder, um, that's microwave frequency. So basically, you can think of our kind of clock in the optical domain is like dividing time down by a ruler with like ticks that are even finer, like, uh, you know. Many orders of magnitude finer, so we can make our measurements more precisely. Just because our clock is actually ticking faster.
1: Well, how is it different from a cesium clock or some of the other great atomic clocks out at NIST?
7: Well, the the cesium clock is a microwave clock, as as Sarah mentioned. So uh, the actual the actual ticking part of the clock, you know, if you think about a grandfather clock, it's got this, you know, pendulum oscillator, and so with t- with atomic clocks the oscillation comes from an electromagnetic wave. And, um, in the case of cesium, that wave is a microwave. And, uh, that has not as many oscillations per second as with strontium or ion clocks, where they're, they're based on lasers, which have many more, you know, many, many more time, uh, many more oscillations per second, you know? And so, um... Since we can just count oscillations, um, basically that allows us to divide time, uh, you know, by the number of oscillations per second, and that gives us kind of a fine resolution, as Sarah mentioned. That that's that's the major difference there.
1: So, because this clock's heartbeat is much faster in the optical frequencies, the frequencies we can see with our eyes, uh, we're able to subdivide time up a lot better. Is that it? That that's essentially correct. Yeah. All right. Well, that's pretty cool. And and wait a minute. Now, why? Why strontium? Why? You know, I mean, why isn't? I mean, won't any element? You know, do this? Uh, Can't? Can't you force some other better element to do this?
8: So, strontium is probably pretty unique. Or there's a few other atoms that are also really good. Um, But the basically how good of a reference um, the atom is for time kind of depends on its position on the periodic table. And strontium just has properties that make it a really good reference itself the atom itself has um basically a transition uh where its natural frequency you can know it to one part and 10 to the 18.
2: do
1: you folks have any customers at NIST that want this clock i mean is like the nfl you know uh, beating down your door so that they can start the game on time or you know who, who could use this
7: clock and you mentioned gps for example are there other sorts of users um well, computer networks definitely use uh, atomic clocks um, at the moment. our clock you know is is sort of on the cutting edge, and so there's not any immediate application for this clock. But as communication technology and global positioning technology advance, certainly the clocks will need to get better. And when that happens, you know, we'll we'll be ready for them.
1: Well, tell tell us a little bit. We just have a, a minute or two left. But tell us a little bit when we go in your lab. Does it, does it, I mean, is it really nice and neat like Star Trek? Or does it, what's it look like when we walk into your lab?
8: Um, So it's pretty funny. We recently got some press about it. And uh, one person on the internet wrote, well, it's nice to know the best clock in the world looks like the area under my desk. So there's like cables running everywhere and stuff. Like, I think the point of our lab is that, it's really easy, it's really like modular, and it's easy to make changes. And so despite the fact that there's cables hanging everywhere, um, if we need to try something new or change something around, we can do it really easily.
1: Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, I uh, work in experimental physics from time to time, too. And so it does look like a mess, but, uh, but usually it's a very controlled sort of mess. Well, that's, that's neat. Thank you so much, Travis and Sarah, for joining us. You're
8: welcome. Thanks.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this quarter is Jim Pullen.
1: This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Kendra Kruger and Beth Bartell.
0: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Herbie Hancock, King Crimson, and Pink Floyd.
1: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter
0: questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham.
1: And I'm Jim Pullen.